0: Tabernacles to come home, and of all things, the Feast of Tabernacles is right across the lake from my home. When I drove down here this morning with my wife through the camping area, it really took me back about 30-some years to Big Sandy in the early days when we had so many people camping on the grounds right up about 30 miles north of us here in Big Sandy, Texas, which finally grew to... A massive crowd one year, I remember speaking before 15,000 people in that big building up there, and many of you were there that year, no doubt. So uh, a lot of fond memories of an awful lot of festivals of tabernacles come back at this time of the year. If I were to walk in here with a slight stoop, but with a gate a little more rapid than mine, take this pulpit and say, Rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Who do you think that would sound like? (laughs) If my father could come back today, would he look back and say, it was all worth it? Would he look back at that time when we were praying every single day with many of the evangelists gathering around? And praying aloud over his little table in his study because my mother was lingering with a terrible intestinal blockage, and week after week she suffered until finally she died. Would he look back at all those ten years of lonesomeness and then a tragic marriage that ended in a messy, messy, multiple million dollar divorce? Those lonely years of his last few months and years on this earth, in this human tabernacle, up there in his upstairs bedroom with tubes of oxygen taped to his lip, unable to move, unable to sleep, supine, having to sit up because of the weight of his own lungs and so on and being in discomfiture. Would he look back and say, it was all worth it as he appraised the church today and all that is happening in the world today, all that has occurred from 1986 when my father died? Let me ask this in the eyes of another man who began a work to which God called him when he was but a youngster and said, oh God, I cannot carry your message, I'm only a boy. And God said, don't say that you're a youth because I have touched your mouth and I have given you my message that you're to convey to them from me. For over 70 years, this man, whose tenure of the work to which God had called him spanned the reign of three separate kings of Judah, had access to the White House of his day. He continually went before the king personally. He didn't have to try to stand on the parapet with a rolled-up magazine shouting to the masses, their version of television or radio of that time. He had access to the leaders. And he went to those leaders continually and told them about juvenile crime and violence and about murder and muggery and mayhem and robbery and arson and about cheating and about taking away the right of widow and elderly people and shut-ins and people on fixed incomes. He told them about crime in the streets. He told them about idolatry, about Sabbath breaking, about the sins of Judah and of Israel. Year after year the messages came, and year after year that man labored until he was an elderly old man, and finally toward the end of his life he went to the then reigning king of Judah. And he said, it's going to get so bad that when God sends the armies of Babylon, your wife and your daughter are going to become harlots to serve the armies of Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to drag you off to Babylon in captivity, and there they're going to slay your beloved two sons in front of your eyes. And instantly, as that imprints itself into your brain to go clanging around with a shriek of, no, it can't be so, they're going to blind your eyes, and you will spend the rest of your days in manacles as a blinded slave. Well, the king nearly went insane and said, away with this rotten so-and-so. He never says anything good about me. Throw him into prison. They threw him into prison, but it was worse than a prison. They threw him, after they took the lid off, into the outhouse. They threw him down into a slime pit with human and animal excrement in it. And he sunk down to his armpits in muck and mire and stench and filth. His name was Jeremiah. Jeremiah. I think you have already tumbled to that because you recall the life of Jeremiah. Well, the king became a little concerned about whether he'd gone too far and perhaps Jeremiah had died. So he slunk out there at night without his own palace guard knowing about it, and he called down, Jeremiah, are you okay? A muffled voice came from down in that stinking pit, yes, I'm alive. Well, he overcome with conscience, said, Get him out of there. And so they lowered down some ropes and put them under his armpits, and they hauled him out, reeking and stinking with all the slime on him, and let him go into a court, where they cleaned him up and gave him some bread and water. The king gave him a little time, and then the king thought, Well, now I will use all my influence, and I'll go by and talk to this man and see if I can't get the real straight word from God. So he went to the king, Jeremiah rather, had the king come to him, and the king said, you know, you can imagine a conversation and what is implied. Now look, Jeremiah, it's me, the king. You can talk to me. We know each other. You can give me the straight scoop. You can tell me the truth. Implied, of course, is, or I can always throw you back in that slime pit. But here you are under house arrest with a little bit of food like bread and water. Jeremiah said, your wife and daughter are going to become harlots to service the troops of Nebuchadnezzar. Your sons are going to be killed in front of your eyes, and you're going to have your eyes put out and die in manacles in Babylon. Well, Nebuchadnezzar came, and the nation fell, and hundreds of thousands of them died. And after the castle, the temple, and the city had fallen, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar found a prisoner called Jeremiah they had heard about him and they recognized that he was a prophet and somehow God influenced their minds and they gave him diplomatic immunity and let him go. And he was released from prison by the enemies of the nation he had tried to warn to whom he had carried a witness unfailingly for perhaps 70 years of his life. Decade after decade, spanning the reign of three separate kings, Jeremiah faithfully Stuck to the message that God had given him when he was a boy. Over here in Tyler, in my office, in my office somewhere, Mark, I don't know where he got a hold of it, my son Mark was given a copy of my very first telecast. I watched that. I was a little bit embarrassed, but on the other hand, Mark was amazed because I didn't miss a single word. The word flow just came right on out. I may have sounded like some of my colleagues at that time who were young ministers in Ambassador College together with my father. My father rather embarrassedly introduced me in that very first program in which I had about a 12 or 14-minute segment, and we were on the ABC network on, I think, 30 or 40 stations around the country in a series of 26 televised programs that were actually put on 16-millimeter film during that time in 1955, and here was a young black-haired man, three years out of the Navy, 25 years of age, named Garner Ted. I sat down in front of that microphone, looked into it, and began telling about how a man named Henry Hill in Sydney, Australia had been riding a bus and some youths got aboard and took a can of Ronsonol lighter fluid and poured it in his lap, struck a match, and tossed it. And I got so mad, I said, and they burned him! And here I am, gesturing and shouting about juvenile violence and delinquency in 1955. Then because our children were young and I was into child rearing. I began to study, would come home with about eight books at a time from the Pasadena Library, including a great big book called Mothercraft and a lot of other books by the child psychologist of that day. How the Twig is Bent by Holman is one I remember and many others. And wrote my master's thesis on the subject of child rearing and, bu- and the booklet eventually The Plain Truth About Child Rearing was the result of that. What difference did it make? What good did it do? Has it made a difference? Did Jeremiah make a difference? For the entirety of his life, he warned the kings of Judah what was going to happen. Not a one of them would repent or turn from their evil ways, and everything God had said about Judah came to pass. My father, back in the very early years of World War II, when I was but a boy, began to warn about a beast rising up in Europe. From his vantage point in Lane County, Eugene, Oregon in 1933, 4, 5, and 6, when Hitler finally acceded to the Chancellery and, of course, the Berlin Olympics were underway, Mussolini was the really big dictator at that time. And some people have actually laid to my father's door a so-called false prophecy because back in about 1934, before Hitler really came to the peak of his power, Mussolini was the big dictator in Europe, and my father, looking at the fact that Mussolini, of course, ruled over Italy, where you find the Vatican, and Italy is predominantly a Catholic state, fought because Mussolini had already invaded North Africa, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and was moving into Italian, Somaliland land and the horn of the Suez Canal, and he thought Ethiopia and those areas would become bases for the Italian armies to actually take Suez and move into the Palestine area. And he saw the prophecies of Daniel 11, chapter 40 to 45, the king of the north, the king of the south, thinking Menelech was king of the south and Mussolini was the king of the north. And he thought, we are living at that moment in history, just before the beginning of the Great Tribulation, and World War II is going to be the end of the last great battle, and Christ is going to come shortly thereafter, after the beast marches into Palestine. My father correctly studied his history and much of the religious literature available at that time, and especially his profane history, as it's called. And he understood that at all times, down through history, the so-called Holy Roman Empire, under Friedrich the Great, Otto the Great, the von Habsburgs, was a Germanic kingdom. He understood correctly, as he looked at biblical prophecy, that the great false apostate church, which became visible toward the close of the first century, as the true church of God, had been put out from among the ranks of the gradually accommodating, visible church. That at all times, the false prophet was a false Christ, not a false imam or ayatollah. Now, there have been some would-be seers and prophets in the last few months who, even at the outbreak of the Gulf War, began to opine that Saddam Hussein is the beast. Some of them even said Iran is the beast. All sorts of scenarios. Now, all of you understand and you know, don't you, that Hal Lindsey and practically everybody in the mainstream Protestant evangelical prophetic school of thought, many of these writers who have written books that have become bestsellers, are of one opinion still... And everything that is happening in the Soviet Socialist Republic, the complete collapse of world communism, the fact that many of the Socialist Republics have actually become independent, have even cut the hammer and sickle out of their flag, are becoming absolutely sovereign states, and only a certain number of them have voted to stay with Gorbachev as a sort of a superficial, supranational union of some sort. But, of course, here is Soviet Georgia in ferment, the Ukraine thinking about going independent, Russia itself under Yeltsin already virtually totally independent and separate, my father, back during that day, looked out at history in the making from the vantage point of a man in the Lane County, Willamette Valley, Eugene, Oregon area, and believed that when the Nazi powers linked together with Japan, was looking over the roof of India in the Middle East, that would begin the beginning of the, of the Great Tribulation and the time of the terrible persecution of the church was near and that only three and a half years remained until the second coming of Christ. In late 1943 and early 1944, when I was 14, my father began to realize the Africa Corps was being kicked out of Africa, that the Americans and British had stopped the advance that had come within sight and sound of Alexandria, Egypt, and he began to say, well, then I was wrong, and the Germans are going to go underground. Germany will lose this war but Germany will rise again out of the ashes of defeat and become a powerful nation in central Europe and later on after the war when Germany was partitioned and when I finally got out of the Navy in May of 1952 my father was preaching and writing continually that Germany would be reunified that Eastern Europe would come out from behind the Iron Curtain that the Soviet Empire is not the beast that the Soviet Union will not invade Palestine, but a Germany at the head of a multilateral lateral European force, which will be a revival of the old Roman Empire, will. How consistently did he preach that message? Well, all of you here that are veterans of those times know all of his life. All of his life, till the day he died. He believed that, he preached it, he wrote it, he never backed away from it. One month after I got out of the Navy, my father wrote in The Plain Truth, June 1952, and I quote, The ten horns in the 17th chapter of Revelation will be the revival of the beast. Not Russia, you see. Not Iran, not Iraq. But the ten horns in the 17th chapter of Revelation will be the revival of the beast, the Roman Empire, out of the bottomless pit by a United States of Europe, or federation of ten European nations within the bounds of the old Roman Empire and that included in all cases at all times many of those races who were artificially divided up into various political entities following World War One like Yugoslavia the Serbs and Croats and of course like Czechoslovakia the Czechs and the Slovaks and all of the other artificial states like Poland that embodied East Prussia and the Danzig Corridor and so on that followed the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire after World War I. The Plain Truth, September 1953, quote, riots that occurred in East Germany. This is the beginning of an East German revolt against Red Tyranny. Czechoslovakia, Poland, and other conquered nations behind the Iron Curtain have witnessed similar uprisings in recent weeks. It will take time, he wrote. But you know when you're 90 and you look back across a lifetime, my father said to me one time, when he was well up into his 80s, he said, you know, Ted, I look in the mirror, and that's not me I'm looking at. It's some old man. I don't feel in here the way I look there. You know what? At age 61, I understand exactly what he meant. (laughs) I look in that mirror. Now when I see my first telecast, 25, black curly hair, now that's Garner Ted Armstrong. I don't know who this little white haired old man is up here he said it will take time but Russia is going to lose out in some of these countries now I could probably bore you to death because I'm quoting from the article I most recently advertised which is a reprint from our premier 1990 January issue of 20th century watch that I hope all of you read and if you didn't please be sure to get that reprint article it is the subject of my last first-class letter I won't bore you with that if it is boring to me it is not because there are 54 separate quotations from over 35 years of plain fruit 20th century watch more recently but good news tomorrow's world magazines radio tapes by the thousands television broadcasts by the thousands some of the first sermons I gave when I was first beginning to preach in God's church had to do with biblical prophecy. For years and years in Ambassador College, I taught classes on biblical prophecy. For all of those years, I have continued to hammer home that same theme, and there are many repetitious quotations from my own writings and preachings here. For instance, Eastern European countries will eventually come out from behind the Iron Curtain joining this new supranational power block, 20th Century Watch, July 1988. Yet, the other day, on John Ankerberg's show, there was a panel of some of these leading lights of American mainstream prophecy, including Hal Lindsey. You know what they were doing? They were trying to piece together and to glue and to band-aid and to patch up the shattered shards of their absolutely destroyed theories about Russia and the Soviet Union. And the opinion at the end of the panel was, Russia is still the beast, and Russia is going to march into Palestine. Amazing, isn't it? The CIA, as I said recently to a couple of our audiences, did not know. The FBI didn't know. The NSC didn't know. None of our security agencies or intelligence agencies knew. The president's cabinet didn't know. The Pentagon didn't know. George Bush was taken absolutely by surprise. The media has gotten on some of our intelligence community that they could not have foretold or have predicted the collapse of the greatest colonial world empire the world has ever seen in so short a period of time. And they didn't predict it. Now, let me get a little bit of audience response here. Just a little bit of automatic audience response. I'll lead you up to the point. You provide me with a missing word. Back in Korea, we fought a war with one arm tied behind our back because of an all-pervasive, generally abiding fear of... Thank you. You're right. And millions of Americans could answer with the same word, couldn't they? How much money did we spend in Korea trying to fight the concept of the domino theory? I was over there helping shovel bombs to load aircraft to go out and kill North Koreans and Communist Chinese. When we fought a war in Vietnam that deeply divided this nation and took tens of thousands of our youngsters and, of course, made shattered wrecks out of tens of thousands more who were still experiencing that, including many people in this room who are no doubt Vietnam War veterans. We fought that war with one arm tied behind our back because of a general pervasive fear of... We built the DEW line, the early warning network of radar all across Alaska and Canada and North America as a result of our fear of a nuclear attack from... Russia. Russia. We have spent trillions, hundreds of billions of dollars over decades for the Gemini Thorogena, the Atlas of Polaris, the Trident submarine systems, the B-2s, the upgraded uh, B-52 bomber with cruise missiles, with our Minuteman and our Atlas systems, with our upgraded, as I said, submarine systems plying the oceans. We have upgraded our military because of our fear of Russia isn't that amazing during the depths of the Kennedy Cuban Missile Crisis my father and I were both saying war with Russia is not in biblical prophecy but a third power block is going to emerge in Central Europe and yet millions of Americans were filling their bathtubs with water because they were worried about the potential of an immediate nuclear war was it worth it did it make any difference my wife and I were invited some years ago to a reception for Anwar Sadat in Washington, D.C. That came through the Egyptian embassy because I had been over to Egypt two or three times and had interviewed Anwar Sadat's wife, Jihan, and also Anwar Sadat himself. And had I won't go into that of what I told him about Israel, that's not a story, but nevertheless it was something that actually, I think, influenced a major world happening. But I walked up to and shook hands with then Secretary of State Cyrus Vance. Watch your program, enjoy it. Walked up and shook hands with Nelson Rockefeller. He told me he watched the program and he enjoyed it. I shook hands with Hubert Humphrey. He watched the program quite often and told me he enjoyed it. When I was sitting on the front lawn with Lyndon Baines Johnson and Lady Bird came out with a pitcher of tea and I spent the whole afternoon with him and he took us around his ranch and showed us all of his exotic game like black bucks and so on, he told me as we were having our tea in his front yard, I watch your program a lot. Agree with a lot of what you say. Of course, that was his disclaimer. He, sure enough, didn't agree with all that I said. Now, when I was on one of the leading television channels in Washington, D.C., for the span of several years, including about a two-year period when I was on daily, I know there are seasonal variations for Christmas, Easter, and New Year's. I know that every now and then I'll talk about juvenile delinquency or crime or marriage and divorce or genital herpes and AIDS, and I'll talk about homosexuality and get myself kicked off WGN like I did. But eventually, in the span of a year's telecast, I am going to be talking sooner or later about prophecy, the Middle East, Europe, and advertising what? Well, on my many, many years in the World Tomorrow program, I advertised the United States and the British Commonwealth in prophecy. And we must have sent out more than 10 million copies of that booklet over the span of years that I was on that program. Since I couldn't use that booklet, I had to write a brand new book of my own called Europe and America in Prophecy, thoroughly researched with about 55 quotations from a lengthy bibliography which does acknowledge people like J.H. Allen, Judas scepter and Joseph's birthright, and many other people, some of the tracts and folders that were extant during the 17th century when about 50, 60 or more percent of the Anglican ministry really understood that Britain was Ephraim and the United States was Manasseh, and even the Church of England acknowledged, not from its leader, but the rank and file understood that the British people were part of the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel. So those men, Gilbert Humphrey, Cyrus brance I took uh, Edwin Muskie on a flight from Boston to New York National, and uh, I should say... Uh, Washington National Airport where I dropped him off for a meeting he had to get back because he was up there at the American Advancement of Science meetings, and I flew him down so he could appear real quickly for a Senate meeting. He watched the program and he enjoyed it. A few years ago, my wife and I were in Washington for one of these speaker's conventions. Bob Dole took the podium. There were only about 100 people in the audience, and I walked back, remembering to shake hands with my left, because his right is handicapped, as you know. He was wounded in World War II, and he holds a pencil in a paralyzed hand. And he said, oh, Mr. Armstrong, I thought I saw you in the audience. And we chatted a while. Now, of course, Rockefeller, Humphrey, and Dole have all been presidential candidates. And but for certain quirks of history, Bob Dole had the uh, present president george bush not been elected might have been a pretty uh, strong candidate for the republican party and he is now the senate minority leader you suppose these people ever heard me talk about germany you suppose they ever heard my father before me talk about the united states of europe that some of eastern europe is going to come out from behind the iron curtain that the third power block that will become the Beast of Prophecy and the King of the North is the group that is going to move into the Middle East under the aegis of the Pope in Palestine, who are the Beast and the False Prophet? Germany, a super dictator over ten nations in Europe in the bounds of the old Roman Empire and the Pope, that's who. Has it made any difference? It didn't make any difference to our intelligence community. It made no difference to the Pentagon. It made no difference to the Senate or the House. Has it made any difference anywhere when a few months ago one of the credentialed leading spokesmen for the parent organization was asked by a major news medium spokesman about these statements involving prophecy and Germany and Europe and was told, we don't emphasize that anymore. Now if my father could come back and he could be visiting in some city where the World Tomorrow program is there and my program is there, and he could listen to both, and then he could look at what has been happening and see that his book called The Mystery of the Ages, hailed when it came out as one of the greatest books since the Bible, in the possession of the entire church as a gift, I guess, I don't think they had to pay for it, has now been withdrawn from the shelf, is not to be reprinted has been taken out of circulation that the booklet the United States and British Commonwealth in prophecy has been withdrawn from the shelf and taken out of circulation that every one of his booklets bearing his name are being withdrawn from the shelf and taken out of circulation my father told a story many years ago and I've heard him tell it out of the pulpit as well to me personally my mom and dad went back to Iowa one time began to look up some of their roots when I was probably a middle teenager He walked into a bank where he had actually known the man, and his uncle Frank had worked with the man that actually established that bank. He wrote about it in great detail in his autobiography. And he asked after the name of the founder of the bank. Well, nobody in the bank had ever heard of the man. He went to a vice president. He never heard of the man. And a secretary overheard him, who had been there for years, and she said, Oh, yes, I think I do remember something about that. You can look it up in the autobiography. He told the details maybe even more clearly than I remember them and she went and got into a file and there was an old yellow paper newspaper clipping about the man having founded that bank and they handed it to my dad and he overcome by a feeling of nostalgia read about the gentleman that he and his uncle frank had known who founded that bank and he started to hand it back and he said well that thank you very much for reading that he said you'll want that oh oh no we won't need it i'm sure no one here if he if you knew him and he was a friend of yours go ahead and take it his name was not on the bank And so my father said, and so in my pocket, departed from the bank that man had founded the last vestige of even his name or his memory. Fascinating story. My father used to tell it with a great deal of sadness. As Jeremiah waded ashore in that foreboding, rocky, storm-tossed Irish coast where the Tuatha de Danann had established its colonies, And he could look back over a lifetime of what he might have said carnally was failure. Could he ask, was it worth it? Could he look back across his life and analyze and appraise how far he had come, the hundreds of times he had gone into the audience of three different kings throughout their entire dynasties, and the times he had been rebuffed and thrown in prison for his pain. And remember back when he was but a youth, God had commissioned him and said, Jeremiah, see, I have set thee this day over the nations to pull down and to build and to plant. And had given him a riddle about a beautiful cedar of Lebanon with a little tiny twig at the very top. And he could see a lovely young girl whose name was Teatefi when she was introduced to a young nobleman of that tribe called Haramon. And the smile on her face... And realize that is the seed of David. And God has used me to transplant the seed of David to this land. As God promised his servant David, there will never fail of your seed royalty to sit on the throne that I have promised you will remain until Christ come. And he could say, I have run my course. I have fulfilled my task. I have fulfilled my destiny. I brought Teatefi to the British Isles. Jeremiah is not buried in Jerusalem. His bones lie moldering somewhere in the British Isles. Glastonbury, Kings Lynn, Ely, Kent, York, who knows? Somewhere, Jeremiah died in the British Isles. In the 24th chapter of the book, of Ezekiel is an interesting insight into a man who was given a series of messages of witness and warning to Israel over a span of many, many years. Many of these men were contemporary, remember? Ezekiel was told the times would get so bad when even cannibalism would occur among some Israelites who were carried into captivity. He had been given message after message, and the 24th chapter is an ugly type of Judah and Israel at that time. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, the word of the Eternal came unto me, saying, Son of man, write thee the name of the day, even the same day. Write this down. Remember what day this is. The king of Babylon right now today is up there plotting and planning and setting his mind to besiege and to sack and pillage Jerusalem right now. So you utter a parable unto this rebellious house and say unto them, Thus says the Lord Eternal, Set on a pot. Get you a great big pot here, big kettle. And also pour water into it, fill it up with water. Gather the pieces thereof unto it, even every good piece, talking now about a young bullock, the thigh, the shoulder, fill it with the choice bones, take the choice of the flock, and burn also the bones under it, and make it boil well, and let them seed the bones of it therein, like a big stew. Wherefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, To the pot whose scum is therein, because this is a vessel that had not been washed. It had known many cookings, but it had never known a good scouring with a brillo pad. It was filthy. Whose scum is not gone out of it. Bring it out piece by piece. Let no lot fall upon it for her blood is in the midst of her, she set it upon the top of a rock, she poured it not upon the ground, to cover it with dust, as God had commanded Israel, if they were to cover up that which issued forth from a man, or blood poured out of an animal, so it wouldn't cause pollution and breed disease, that it might cause fury to come up to take vengeance. I have set her blood upon the top of a rock, that it should not be covered. Therefore thus says the Lord eternal, Woe to the bloody city! I will even make the pile for fire great heap on wood, kindle the fire, get a great big hot fire going here, consume the flesh, don't just cook it, but burn it up. Spice it well and let the bones be burned, then set it back empty upon the hottest coals you can find, that it may be hot and may burn, and that the filthiness of it may be molten in it until the pot itself melts, that the scum of it may be consumed. Because that pot meaning Jerusalem, and by extension, the race of people to whom Ezekiel was sent, was so filthy in his rotten, wicked, bestial, unspeakable sins that the only way to get it clean was to consume it with fire. This is a type of Gehenna fire. It is a type of hell, hellfire, that awaits those who are the rebellious of God's people Because even though they are going to go into captivity, and they are going to be consumed by a World War III that is going to destroy our nation, there are others who are going to rebel all the way to Gehenna fire, and whose stiff necks will never repent. She has wearied herself with lies, and her great scum went not forth out of her. Her scum shall be in the fire. In thy filthiness is lewdness. Now go to your average rock concert, take a look at your average nighttime television, take a look at the average movie in the video store. If you're flipping around with your automatic control sometime, you see a chainsaw going right through somebody's chin and breastbone, don't worry about it, that's just nighttime American fun and games. It's just entertainment. If you're hearing about the growth of infectious gonorrhea, genital herpes and warts, of syphilis, of AIDS, if you're hearing about guys up in Milwaukee killing a whole swarm of 20 or 30 people dismembering their bodies and burying them under his own house, if you're hearing about the Ted Bundys going around from state to state and killing people, if you're hearing about Satan is stealing little children, dismembering their bodies in satanic rituals, if you're hearing about murder, rape, and mayhem everywhere in our society, well, then what you do is you grab your hymnal and turn to America the beautiful and stand there and sing, vine alabaster cities gleam undimmed by human tears. Los Angeles, Dallas, Fort Worth, Atlanta, New York, Chicago, Detroit, Alabaster, undimmed by human tears, festering squalid pus pockets of racial hatred, of inequity, of sin, robbery, violence, and murder, of white, blue, and soiled collar crime a nation that God indicts from length to breadth and top to bottom and says it is absolutely filthy, there is no cleanness in it, it is putrid like running sores and says they declare their sin as as Sodom, they hide it not. The contrary wise is in thee, he says, to all whores who take money from their consorts. Thou, like an old whore waddling around, pay your customers to come and have sexual relations with you. That's what he said of Hola and Holabah, of Israel and Judah. Here is Ezekiel wearing himself out in a lifetime ministry as an inmate of a concentration camp. And God said, go get thee to Pharaoh. He couldn't go. He wrote it down. Go get thee to Ammon. He didn't go to Ammon. He wrote it down. Go get thee to Mount Seir. He couldn't go. He was in a concentration camp by the river Kabor. Take my message to Israel. But Israel had disappeared 127 years earlier. And it's very clear in the book of Ezekiel there is the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And Ezekiel knew the difference, and so do we. Ezekiel's message is for our day. And God had him go through an ordeal much like that of my father. Let's go on and read a few verses. Verse 16. Son of man, behold, watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to take away from you the desire of your eyes the most pleasant thing you can look upon with a stroke. Yet neither are you to mourn nor weep, neither shall your tears run down, forbear to cry, make no mourning for the dead, bind the tire of your head upon thee, and put on your shoes upon your feet, and cover not your lips, and eat not the bread of men. So I preached like I always do, and gave them warning and witness. I spake unto the people in the morning, and that evening my wife died, and the next morning I preached and gave them warning and witness like I always have done. And the people said unto me, Will you not tell us what these things are to us that you do so? You haven't hired mourners. You're not fasting. You haven't made your face long. You have not attired yourself in black. You're not weeping at the beer of your beloved wife. What do these things mean? I answered them, The word of the Eternal came unto me, saying, Speak unto the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord Eternal, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary." The excellency of your strength, the desire of your eyes, and that which your soul pities, everything you hold dear. And your sons and your daughters whom you have left shall fall by the sword, and you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. Your tires will be upon your head, your shoes upon your feet. You shall not mourn nor weep, because this is beyond tears." This is beyond mere, oh merciful heavens, what has happened. This is to the point of such total shock that the system has dealt such a blow, there is only dumbfounded misapprehension. It is beyond tears what God is to do. Also, thou son of man, shall it not be in the day when I take from them their strength, the joy of their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that whereupon they set their minds, their sons and their daughters that he that escapes in that day shall come unto thee and tell you about it and cause you to hear about it with your ears. In that day shall your mouth be opened to him that is escaped, and you will speak and be no more dumb, and you shall be as a sign unto them, and finally they will know I am God. Some few refugees were going to come back like the one out of ten Christ healed, and give Ezekiel acknowledgement. They were going to come back and say, Ezekiel, you were right. Ezekiel, you knew what you were talking about. And the other prophets did not. They lied to us. But you were right. Our nation was going to go down. Ezekiel had to continue, even as his wife died, as did my own human physical father. Could Ezekiel look back as the day of his death approached and ask, was it worth it? It depends on what you mean, worth what? Were these men reformers? I tell you, no, they were not. Ezekiel was told, you take a message out of this rebellious house whose foreheads are going to be as adamant as Flint because they won't believe you. Shake hands with Hubert Humphrey, Cyrus Vance, Nelson Rockefeller, Bob Dole, Lyndon Johnson. Listen to your program a lot enjoyed it, agree with much of what you say, but they didn't hear it. They listened, but they didn't hear it. They didn't know. Our government didn't know what was going to happen in the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and in Germany, and what is yet to happen over there. They don't know, but they could if they would ask God's servants. Now, don't raise your hands because I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but I can just ask this question, as I did recently up in Denver. When all of these things begin to happen in world conditions, especially in Central Europe, as nation after nation, from East Germany to Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, Yugoslavia, throw off the yoke of communist domination, and Russian tanks are withdrawing, and they've got their own economic problems, and near-civil war, like in Yugoslavia, and other areas like Azerbaijan and Russia, and Bielorussia and some of the provinces, or Republics, better said, of Russia, where they're going to have economic collapse and the emergence of strong dictators, which is the wave of the future you watch and see. How many of you were surprised? I doubt if there was a one, if you've been listening very long to my father and to me, that were surprised at all about what's shaping up in Europe. But the Pentagon was surprised. Our entire defense budget was geared to what Hal Lindsey believed. Not to what Herbert W. and Garner Ted Armstrong have been preaching. If it had been geared to what we have been preaching, we could have had a social welfare program in the United States that Democrats couldn't even gripe against, because we could have spent all those hundreds of millions and billions of dollars on social welfare instead of the DEW line, the Gemini Thorogena, and Atlas and Trident, Polaris submarines, and the B 52s, and the cruise missiles, and all of the other stuff, the huge carrier groups and battleships that we have put to sea. If my father were to come back today and he were to hold in his hands an anniversary issue after the Berlin Wall came down, Europe was beginning to throw off the mantle of Soviet domination, the Warsaw Pact had disintegrated, Germany was reunifying, and he could hold in his hands the plain truth magazine of that date, what would he have thought? What would he have said? If he could come into a city where both The World Tomorrow and my program are on and look at them both, what would he think? What would be his appraisal? If he could hear a spokesman for the organization to whom he passed the baton say in response to a question from major news media, what about Europe? What about Germany? You people have really emphasized that for years, well, we don't emphasize that anymore. If you could see that the United States and British Commonwealth and Prophecy is taken off the shelf and out of print, if you could see that they're saying there are mistakes and problems and the book Mystery of the Ages is off the shelf and out of print, if you could see that about three years ago they decided the stripes of Jesus Christ were not efficacious for the healing of our sins that cause disease, if you could see that the leader to whom he passed the baton is saying, we are already born again. If he could see that they are saying the Trinity is up for review, all of our doctrines are up for review, but then he could see his son, Garner Ted Armstrong, saying, your wife and daughters are going to serve as the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, and your sons are going to be put to death, and your eyes are going to be put out, and you're going to be taken into jail, that the United States of America is going to be destroyed by the United States of Europe. That a super dictator is going to emerge to lead Europe eventually into Palestine. That the false prophet is the Pope and the beast is a dictator in Central Europe. Now, when the focus and the spotlight stops swinging around looking to see who's causing all the trouble out here, who's going to stop on? Somebody who says, we don't emphasize prophecy anymore. We don't have a booklet called the United States and British Commonwealth in Prophecy that identifies Israel anymore. Where's the spotlight going to stop? On the Methodists, Baptists, Episcopalians, and Presbyterians? Is it going to stop on you, or do you have no part in it? Do you have no part in it? Do you ever talk to people about Germany? Poland, Czechoslovakia, Eastern Europe, a United States of Europe, the beast power, who is the king of the north, what's going to happen in Palestine? Do you ever tell people why you're not surprised about everything that's been taking place since November 1989? Are you a light? Are you salt? Are you the witness that you should be? Or are you simply sitting on the sidelines urging somebody else to take all the heat? Because the heat I'm going to take. The heat is going to come. That spotlight will stop and focus down to a bright pin spot someday, and then there are those who are going to pay the price for what they believe. Let's look at the fourth chapter of the book of Acts right quickly, fourth chapter of the book of Acts, for a little emphasis from what occurred after Jesus Christ experienced a horrible event. And perhaps one of the most hurtful things Christ experienced was following that warm and wonderful Last Supper, when Judas Iscariot went clattering down the stairs, when he got so incensed, when he overheard Jesus say to John, it is him to whom I give this sop." And then, dying on the stake, saw all of his disciples forsake him, all of them forsook him. I am ready to die with you, said Peter. This very night, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Never, Lord, never. He saw all of his disciples forsake him, and could see dimly some of them come creeping back, trying not to be noticed. John, with his arm around Mary, and looked down through cracked and puffed lips, bloodied and dying, and tell him, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. In the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, in verse 1, as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them. They arrested them and put them in the hold until the next day because it was now evening. Many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. That is one gigantic evangelistic campaign, isn't it? That's a huge number of people lining up four abreast trying to be baptized. That's a lot of converts, 5,000 people, a lot of success. It came to pass on the morrow, the rulers, elders, and scribes, Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, this was a hearing, this was sort of the grand jury, this was a tribunal, they asked, By what power, by what authority, Under whose auspices, what legal documents have you got here? Or by what name have you done this? Now look at Peter's wisdom because he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he said with great wisdom, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if you mean you're examining us because of this poor, impotent cripple who is now leaping and shouting and dancing and has been made well, if that's what this investigation is all about, by what means he's made whole, What a beautiful statement. You talk about something that must have cut to the bottom of their hearts with an indictment of their own rotten guilt, because these little cloakroom caucuses where politicians get together having already designed exactly what they believe is the outcome, as Ollie North said before the combined American Congress, that you make the rules and you will declare yourselves the winner. That was electrifying when that man took on the entire Congress of the United States and called some of them exactly what they are. Unbelievable. Well, Peter, with that wisdom, said, Be it known unto you all and to the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. What an indictment. In the name of the man you killed, you murdered, whom God, no matter what you can do with your paltry human power, whom God raised from the dead, the death you administered to him, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone, and they were familiar with those scriptures. They knew Deuteronomy 32. They knew a lot of the scriptures that had to do with the stone, the rock of Israel, and David's psalms about the stone, which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none under name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved." When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, or they thought so according to their own way of judging. They weren't really ignorant at all, but they were looking at the fact that they weren't erudite and they weren't lettered in the way that the scribes and Pharisees might have been. They were common men, they were fishermen, but they were smart. They were intelligent. They were not dumb. just that they weren't, uh, you know, the graduates of this world's institutions. They marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus, And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. They wanted to. They were dying to. But they thought maybe they better not. This is a politician's mind at work. This is pragmatism. This is expediency. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, then they had this private caucus. Now we come to the conclusion saying, what shall we do unto these men? We'd like to at least cut off some of their toes. We'd like to at least put out an eye or two, whack off a couple of ears, maybe dislocate a shoulder. We'd like to give them some pain, for indeed, a notable miracle has been done by them, is evident to everybody that dwells in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, but that it spread no further among the people. We don't want any more miracles. That isn't what they said. But that this insidious heresy, uh, this party spirit, this contrary group that is taking away our support, our tithes and offerings, our power, our control. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, what was it they were asking them to give up? They said nothing about the Sabbath, about the annual holy days. They could keep all of those concepts. Tithing. They could keep the concept of no ever burning hell. The resurrection of the dead, the laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, the plan of salvation, the understanding of the identity of their nation, clean and unclean meats, dozens, dozens, and dozens of doctrines. They could have the entire body of truth, and if they wanted to, they could just dress it up in a tuxedo and a neat little bow tie and say, we preach in the name of Messiah. But they couldn't say the name Jesus Christ. That's all no big deal they're leaving us ninety-nine and forty four hundred percent of the truth if we just don't mention that name anymore and we can go out of here and kinda blend into the population and kinda be anonymous and the spotlight isn't gonna stop and zero in on us and say now wait a minute what are you saying here and we won't come in for condemnation by officialdom we will become kind of mainstream will become just generally with the rest of them in the swim with the group out here, where you won't really be able to tell a whole lot of difference from what we preach and what they preach. They'll really look like a pack of Pharisees and Sadducees, what we'll look like. The only thing that makes us different is this name. So Peter answered and said, and John both, and said, whether it be right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, I guess you folks will have to be the judge of that. Now, that's quite a statement, isn't it? You, you know, a paltry, human, fleshly, quivering, stinking, sweating human being, listen to God or listen to you, I guess you'll have to be the judge of that. For we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. That's kind of logical, isn't it? We're before a tribunal. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you, the eternal God. Well, they really want them to tell the truth? Well, I saw him die, and I saw him rise, and I saw him come back, and he told us to go and heal this guy. We can only speak the things that we have seen and heard. We can only be witnesses of what we experienced. So, that must have infuriated them. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them, they wanted to, because of the people, that's who they feared, for all men glorified God for that which was done. In the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul, writing to this church, Acknowledge that there was already something insidious at work among the membership of God's true church, which is at all times a spiritual organism impossible to gather together into one political organization. And he said, let no man deceive you by any means, verse 3, because that day will not come except there come a falling away first. How do you fall if you haven't ever stood? Do Baptists become Catholics to fulfill that Scripture? Do Greek Orthodox acknowledge the Pope to fulfill that Scripture? Do Seventh-day Adventists become Mormons? Do Mormons become Catholics? What do you think this Scripture means? How do you fall away? Isn't it obvious he's talking about God's Church, the truth of Almighty God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the acception? or the acceptance and the acknowledgment of Christ as Savior, and then the abandonment of that? Isn't that what he's talking about when he says falling away? You know it is. Falling away from the original truth of God as delivered to God's church. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's talking about the Pope in Palestine, talking about the false prophet. If there are shadowy types we can understand, and of which we should beware, let us take heed. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you, I warned you about these things, and now you know what is holding it back. What is standing here in the gap, preventing it, that he might be revealed when it's time, in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness, sin, iniquity, is already at work. Only he who now restrains, as that should read, will continue to restrain until, the Greek word genomai, until it become to be or become evident for what it is or arise in the midst. You can look it up. Taken out of the way seems to involve Paul being taken out of the way, but there seems to be evidence that shows that it should say, referring to the one who is the preacher of the mystery of iniquity until he become evident for who and what he is, until he be recognized in the midst for who and what he is. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and wonders with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that are perishing, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. What happened to that early church? Most of you know church history. At least you can read it in the biblical accounts in the New Testament. You can go to the book of Jude and see all of those that were blemishes and spots in our Feast of Charity. You can read about the false teachers in 2 Peter 2. You can read about those such as diographies who kicked the true believing members out of the church and had a hold of the physical property and forbade them that would. And you can read Jude saying it was necessary to get back to the faith once delivered to the saints. And you know that history says that at the close of the first century, the recognizable church of God that Jesus Christ of Nazareth had built and had commissioned disappeared from history. And the visible church became what today is the Roman Catholic Church. Now, if Christ himself had come back as a human being and walked the streets of Rome in about 325 A.D., about the time some of the prelates and the others were leaving to take a journey at sea to go over for the Council of Nicaea, where would he have found the true church? Next to the palace? Living in big, splendiferous buildings in the Vatican? Would he have gone up and tried to find all those wearing their glorious, splendiferous robes and walking along with big bejeweled shepherds, crooks, and crosses wearing miters on their head? No. No, he would have had to wait until after dark and gone way out into areas where they buried their dead and lie prone and wait until a little head popped up and was silhouetted against the darkening sky and say, psst, hey, are you one of the true believers? Who's there? Yes, we are. Who is it? Well, I want to talk to you if you profess the name of Jesus Christ and keep the Passover on the 14th. Come in. And you'll be taken down in a cave. You can go visit them today. You can see the bones of people who spent their entire lives like moles underground. The true believers were driven out. They were scattered. Their power was broken. And really, you can only, by dint of difficult research, reading mostly that which was written against them by their enemies, ferret out little tidbits and scraps of truth about people called the Henricians or the Arnoldists or the Bogomils, if they were members of God's true church. The followers of Henri or of Peter Waldo, the Valdensians or the Vaudois, as they were called, of southern France and of Switzerland and northern Italy. You can find Sabbath keepers. And people who believed in the quarto deciman so-called theory, or the 14th, and who were willing to die for it, and not change the way they observe God's Passover, but clung to the truth of God. Now let's turn to the book of Matthew and see what Jesus Christ says about what is going to happen just before he comes. He says in the 24th chapter, beginning in verse 33, So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And that generation did see the pillaging and burning of Jerusalem in 71 A.D., and hundreds of thousands of them were put to death, and they were the very same ones who would have still been alive and remembered the warnings of Peter and Paul and the apostles in many cases. And it happened to them just like it did Zedekiah. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away, but of that day and hour knows no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be." Noah, climbing ever higher on the parapet and the scaffolding as he put together the biggest ship the world has ever seen, far bigger than this building, with a carrying capacity much larger than the cubic space available inside this building shouted and preached and warned and was a witness against those people for all of their bestiality, cannibalism, and sin for 120 years. Listen to you all the time, Noah. Enjoy your program. Agree with you part of the time. But they didn't really believe it when he said it's going to rain, and then it's going to rain, and then it's going to rain. Forty days it's going to rain. And the fountains of the deep are going to be broken up. And God is going to drown you all like rats. You ask, why am I building this ship? Nutty Noah, out here in the cornyard, you know, miles away from the sea, building a great big ship. Because God is going to take me and my family and anyone else who will listen. If you want to save yourselves, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Build yourselves an ark. Ark schmark. Who needs an ark? Let's go listen to the latest band concert. As in the days of Noah. They were eating and drinking. It doesn't mean overly eating and drinking. Really, it's just saying they were doing what people do normally, living their day-to-day lives normally, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not. How could they not know? How could our government not have known? They've been told by my father and me since 1934, by myself since 1955... I have done thousands upon thousands of television broadcasts, thousands and thousands of radio broadcasts, preached thousands of sermons, written dozens upon dozens of articles, and my father far more than I before me. And they don't know. They knew not until the flood came and took them all away. That's the way it's going to be in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. Two in the field, one taken, the other left. Two women grinding, doing their normal thing, getting ready to bake bread. One is taken, the other is left. Watch, therefore, for ye you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, and this is a constant state, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then, and let's ask this question? of ourselves individually, because these are the words of Christ, and ask ourselves this question institutionally or organizationally. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord, not some other man, his Lord, hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so Doing? What do you suppose my answer will be as you reflect on Peter's answer and Jeremiah's answer in Ezekiel's continuing prophecy after his wife died? What do you want me to say if CBS, NBC, ABC, or Larry King Live or someone sticks a microphone in front of me and says, Now, I understand that for many, many years you've been talking about Germany coming together and about a United States of Europe. Do you want me to say, Oh, well, I don't emphasize that anymore. I don't care if you do or not. I'm still going to say, yes, the United States of Europe is going to be the death of the United States of America if we don't repent. Because that's what God has called me to say, to preach a witness and a warning to our beloved country And as Jeremiah could write his Jeremiah called the Lamentations, that says, My tears run down my face all the day long for the plight of my people. The children whose legs are black as sticks cry for their food in the streets and pour out their souls into their mother's bosoms. I am distressed. My bowels, my bowels, they hurt within me for the pollution and destruction of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah said, Oh, I can't stand it. What were the motives of that prophet? Why, at ground at the very innermost part of his being, what he saw those people doing. That's why God says, blessed are those who sigh and cry for all the abominations they see taking place around them, because they are the ones who are going to be spared when the day of God's wrath comes. If my father could come back, and if he could listen to the world tomorrow a few times, and listen to my program a few times, I'll leave you with one question to ponder. Who do you think my father would conclude? is carrying on with the work